So when I was a kid, I was really into sports. I would play pretty much anything, if you gave me a chance. Um, loved it. Had fun doing it. Always had fun doing it. But I was also the kind of person, the kind of kid especially, that was very competitive and I put a lot of pressure on myself. So I don't know if there's anybody else in the room that is like that. But there was a lot of fun. But there was also like part of me that took it really serious and always wanted to do well and win and all that kind of stuff. To the point where my family will tell you that the night before a big game, it was not uncommon for me to wake up my entire family because... I would have lucid dreams, and I'd be yelling at an umpire or a referee or something like that, and someone would have to come and wake me up and go, dude, relax, go back to bed, because uh, it just got in my head that way. But I was super competitive, and I love playing all kinds of sports, uh, still love sports. I love that now my son is getting into sports, and I can see him doing the things that I did, and it was so good. But one of the things that really stood out to me in my childhood when it came to sports is I remember my family was just very supportive of that kind of stuff. So when one of us was doing something, everybody else would make the effort to show up, especially my dad. My dad was really into sports, and I think it was uh, uh, one of those areas of life that we really connected well in. And so I can remember that pretty much anything I was participating in, my dad would show up. He would change his schedule. He would re rearrange things. He would make sure even the stuff that was in the middle of the day, right when you're supposed to be working, into, he would do whatever he could to clear stuff. So if I was running in a track meet and I would tell him the times that my events were scheduled and uh, even if he had to be doing stuff during the day, I would get ready and I'd be getting ready for my race and I would always see him there showing up to make sure that he would see me race. If I was in a baseball game, I remember he would take my baseball schedule. I used to love baseball as a kid. And at the beginning of the year, he would literally take that as his schedule. And when he was scheduling different stuff for work and things that he had to do, he would make sure that those nights when I had a game, he was free. He would be there. When I played basketball in high school, uh, and it was the middle of the day, we had games, home games, away games. He would travel. He would drive places. I would always see him in the stands. And I, I that like even to this day as an adult, I look back and I treasure that because of how important it is for somebody to cheer you on. And whatever you're doing in life, how important it is to know that you've got somebody in your corner, somebody that will show up for you, somebody that will cheer for you. Do you know why? Because there are a lot of voices that we hear in our world and our life, and they're not all positive voices. And some of them are the voices, some of them are very well-intentioned, but some of them are voices that put pressure on us pressure to, to perform and succeed and to do more. Some of those voices are very negative. They're, they're against us or they're, they're messages that, that, that uh, you know, push us down instead of pull us up. And when I say voices, this could be just kind of things that are in our, our culture, our world around us. Some of those voices are actually the voices of people that have said things to us. They might not have intended it, but have hurt us or, or, or caused us to think negative things about us, have discouraged us. Some of those voices we, all, we know all too well have become internal voices. And we even have messages that come from in our own mind uh, that tell us to, to doubt ourselves or tell us that we're not good enough or to tell us that we've got to do more and earn more and perform more. And so it is so important in our lives, in every area of our life, that we know that we've got voices that are cheering us on, that there's somebody for us. I think uh, a lot of us, when we take those voices... And maybe you can think for yourself, we put pressure on ourselves to be certain things based on what those voices have told us. We actually order our lives around some of those voices that put pressure on us to do things or to be things. 
we start to rearrange how we look at our identity. So we might feel the need to be something that someone expects out of us. Again, some of these voices may come from very well-intentioned people who love us very much, and they don't mean to put any extra pressure on us, but we've taken on the pressure. So some of us, whether it's in adolescence or childhood and, and now as adults, we might feel the need to be, for example, the funny one or the pretty one or the smart one or the athletic one or the successful one, the spiritual one, the creative one, the musical one, the rich one that there are these voices that have expectations for us that we feel like we have to rise and meet. And in the midst of that, what happens is we're not just trying to appease those voices that come into our mind and influence our lives, uh, but we add to it our own insecurities. And so sometimes we've got these deep needs that we're trying to fill by being these things, by gaining someone's attention or affection, by, by rising to their uh, their levels, or, or even just kind of what they expect from us. And then we throw in, this is a killer, we throw in comparison. So when we feel like we not only have to be, for example, the successful one, we have to be the one that's a little bit more successful than somebody else. The pretty one, but now I need to be a little bit prettier than somebody else. And whatever those things are for us, we throw in our insecurities and then we add a little bit of comparison. And for many of us, we're stuck with these voices that are very hard for us to deal with, very hard for us to appease. There's a great temptation that I think all of us deal with. And that temptation is for us to be popular, for us to be well-liked, for us to appease all the voices that have expectations for us and tell us this is who you should be. This is what you should do. This is what you need to achieve and accomplish in life. And if you rise to this challenge and if you get to this level, then maybe you'll feel like I've done it and I'm popular and people like me. And that fills a void for us. It's a great temptation that all of us have. And we're in this series. We're talking about three temptations that Jesus faced before he started his public ministry, before anybody really knew who he was, before he did anything that was of note. Uh, he went into the wilderness and he was tempted by the tempter or the devil. Uh, and he goes through these temptations, which I think are so important for all of us because they're not just the temptations Jesus went through. They're the temptations that we all deal with. And today I want to look at that temptation to be popular, to stand out, to be spectacular, to do something that everybody notices, to be that person that people look at and go, wow, look at all that they've achieved. Look at all that they've done. They're so great. It's that, uh, it's that temptation to create an image for ourselves that's impressive and that stands out. So let's read a little bit from Matthew chapter 4. We started last week talking about how Jesus was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the tempter comes to him. And the second temptation we read today from verse 5, it says, The devil or the tempter took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you, and he will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. So there's a lot of symbolism going on here. I think that's obvious. The tempter takes him, we don't know exactly what this is like, but somehow whisks him away to the highest point of the temple, 
Now, why the temple? The temple in the holy city is the central place of religion and the religious system. It's a place where everybody's going to take notice. It is a place where people are coming uh, with kind of that highest expectation that many of us have. They're coming to connect with God. They're coming to connect in community. They're coming with expectations of what it looks like for us to, to have a connection and have some kind of relationship with God. It's a very, very visible place. It's where people will take pilgrimages to. People would travel from all kinds of different places for certain festivals or for certain functions that would happen only in the temple, that people would certainly see this. And the tempter says, if you're the son of God, maybe a better way to translate that would be to say, since you are the son of God, then throw yourself off, jump, do something spectacular, do something everybody will notice. Everybody's come here looking for God, looking for religious and spiritual leadership, looking for someone that they can follow. And do you know what would be really spectacular? I'll take you up to the pinnacle of all of that, where everybody can see and everybody is going to take notice. And Jesus, then do something spectacular. Jump off and show them who you are. Because since you're the son of God, isn't God going to show you, show up for you? Isn't he going to rescue? Isn't he going to send angels? Won't God do something? And then look, you'll look amazing. And who's not going to follow the guy who jumps off of the temple and has angels come attend to him? It's the temptation. What's the temptation? Is to be popular, to do something spectacular, to stand out, to be impressive, to do something that people would applaud, to make a name for yourself. And in this instance, to do it with religion, to do it with the Bible behind you, to do it with all the credibility people might be expecting. By the way, this is the only place that we read in all of the scripture that the temple, the tempter or the devil quotes scripture. It's the only place. And he quotes from Psalm 91. We read a big chunk of Psalm 91 this morning when we were singing. It's a beautiful psalm. Beautiful song about God's protection for those who trust in God, the Most High, for those who who come before him and live their lives in his shadow. That is, I want to be right near him. I want to be in his presence. I want to trust him that he will show up. He will protect. He will care for. He will give life to. And so the tempter, what a great temptation. Well, since you're the son of God, Since you have this incredible connection with God and with the divine, well, here we are, the pinnacle of religion. This is it, and everybody's watching. Look, this is going to be amazing. Throw yourself off, and I'll give you a Bible verse that you can claim, and God will show up for you. And oh, it will be good, won't it? And think of what people will say. Let me read to you a couple of verses from Psalm 91. We already read them uh, together when we were singing, but... This is from Psalm 91, verses 14 on. It says, if you will hold on to me for dear life, says God, I'll get you out of any trouble. I'll give you the best care. If you'll only get to know and trust me, call me and I'll answer. Be at your side in bad times. I'll rescue you, then throw you a party. I'll give you a long life, give you a long drink of salvation. In kind of the second chunk there, says, I'll give you the best care if you'll only get to know and trust me. It literally there says, because the one who has set his love or her love on me knows my name. This is what Psalm 91 is about. It's about relationship. It's about trust. It is this, this beautiful, beautiful poetry 
where God says, the one who learns my name, who trusts me with their life, the the one who comes to me and we have this deep connection. They love me and I love them. I will give them the best care. I will be there for them. Even in the worst of times, I'll throw them a party. I'll rescue them, give them long life, a drink of salvation. And that beautiful line, if you'll only get to know and trust me, or if you'll set your love on me and know my name, then God says, and I'll know yours. We'll be together. This beautiful, beautiful, relational, trust-building poetry. And the tempter, do you know the tempter is doing that? He's taking that and saying, but what if we exploited that so that people thought you were amazing? What if we exploited the relationship and we made it a little more transactional? Quid pro quo. You have to do this for me. This is what the Bible says. So if if you've made this promise, then I'm going to do this and you've got to show up for me in this way. What if we twisted this instead of a call for this deep relational trust, this, this vulnerable and very intimate trust? What if we made it public? What if we made it showy? What if we sort of trick God into be a genie? Well, you said this, and so that's my wish is that you'll save me. And then you've got this verse that seemingly says that if I fall, you're going to catch me and send the angels to catch me. It's a temptation to be popular, even if we need to take scripture and twist it and make it justify what we want. The temptation is to take the relationship and make it transactional and to make it showy. And everybody would see it. Spectacular that it would be. Why are we tempted to do that? I think it's because we put a premium on what people think of us. We want to fulfill other people's expectations. We want to kind of fill that void in us. We want to get the applause. Of course we want to get the applause. We want people to notice what we do. We want people to think we're good at what we do, that we've worked hard and we've earned some things. That's fine. But at the end of the day, God wants us to be with him, to trust him, to rest in him. So here's how Jesus takes on that temptation. Back in Matthew chapter four, verse seven, Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, oh, you got a Bible verse. It's a great lesson, right? By the way, we can all take the Bible and make it say whatever we want to say. I hope you know that, it's very dangerous. The scriptures also say, you must not put the Lord, test the Lord your God. Now this is a quote, we're gonna do, uh, we're gonna jump to a bunch of stuff because this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter six, which is talking about Exodus chapter 17, which is based on Exodus 15 and 16. Ready? Here we go. It's fine. Deuteronomy chapter six, which says, you must not put the Lord your God to the test, which was referring to a story that comes in Exodus chapter 17. But here's what happens in Exodus chapter 15. And this overlaps a little bit with the story we talked about the people of Israel last week. Exodus 15, the people have come out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. God brings them out miraculously. They go through the Red Sea, which is split. They get to the other side. They, they come to a place that is called Mara, where the water is bitter. And immediately after being miraculously, famously rescued by God, they go, great, we can't drink the water here. We're just going to die. And they start complaining. And so God makes the water sweet for them. Now in that moment, when God does that for you, there's a lesson to be learned. Not just, oh, wow, that's great now that we can drink the water. But oh, part of the lesson is when we're in need, God will show up for us. We can trust him. Go to Exodus chapter 16. What happens? They start moving on and they get upset because they don't have anything to eat. Do you remember this last week? 
We came out here and we're just going to die because we don't have any food. I know that last week, probably wasn't last week, but we had not enough water and God turned it all sweet so we could drink it. But now we have no food. So God gives them bread in the morning, the manna, and quail at night. And every day you're going to have enough to eat. People have been complaining, let's just go back to Pharaoh. We were slaves, but at least we knew where our next meal was coming from. Exodus 15, God makes sure they have water. Exodus 16, God makes sure that they have food. Exodus 17, they move on again to the next spot in the wilderness, and there's no water. And so what do the people do who have seen God miraculously split the sea, bring them into, uh, out of slavery, Give them water miraculously. Give them food miraculously. Now we don't know where we're going to get water. What do they do? They complain again. Well, now we have no water. We're just going to die out here. They're not really getting the message. So they quarreled with Moses. They couldn't trust that God cared for them and would provide for them. They tested him. They tested and tested and tested because they couldn't learn to trust. So they put God to the test. Where are you now, God? Where are you now, God? Exodus 17, 7, when we're going through this, do you know what their test is? This is what they say. Is the Lord among us or not? Yahweh, our God, is he really among us or is he not among us? We got no water. God gives them water. We got no food. God gives them food. We got no water again. Is God even with us? Testing, testing, testing. They're trying to learn trust. God just saying, I'm going to show up for you. You know, I'm going to show up for you. Trust me, trust me trust me. Is God with us or not? I wonder if you ever asked that question. Will he actually provide for us? Will he show up for us? Okay, that's where the quotes come from. And that's the underlying, uh, what is this thing about testing? We're testing God, and it's about testing versus trusting. But what about Jesus? What has Jesus just gone through? Before he goes out into the wilderness, before he is tested, Jesus is baptized. John the Baptist shows up on the scene. John the Baptist is proclaiming uh, that the Messiah is coming, and he's there to announce that. And Jesus goes out, and he asks to be baptized by John. And John at first refuses. He says, no, 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 you're greater than me. I have no reason to baptize you. And Jesus insists. And so John baptizes him. A lot of symbol, symbolism there, by the way, going into the water as the Israelites had gone into the water of the Red Sea and come out the other side miraculously. Baptism is kind of a picture of that. We were in slavery and now we're going into freedom. We have to pass through the waters, get baptized. But this is what happens when Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter three. And it's what we read about just before he goes and gets tempted. It's very important because I think it sets up the strength that Jesus has to be tempted in his baptism. Verse 16, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and landing on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is so, so powerful. So beautiful. But Jesus, before he has done anything, before he's performed miracles, before he's taught anything of significance, before anybody really knows who he is, except for maybe a small group of people, before the the people are following him, and before he is tempted, he's baptized and he comes out of the water and the Spirit of God comes upon him and the voice says, this is my son. In another translation, chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. You got to get that before you go into the desert. 
You got to get that before somebody says to you, I'm going to put you on the pinnacle of our religious system where everybody can see it. Do something spectacular so people will notice and follow so that you'll be someone of significance. Say, I'm already someone of significance. I am the son of the most high God and he delights in me. He loves me. Henry Nouwen says that being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence, that one of the most basic things that we need to encounter and experience in our spiritual lives is to know that we are God's beloved, that that's our identity, that that's who we are, that we're not out here trying to earn anything or impress somebody or get to a certain place where finally we are impressive and then look how we stand out and look at that we've all done. But instead, before any of that, before we even set out to do anything remarkable, or if we never do anything remarkable, that we hear God's voice come to us and say, you are my daughter. You are my son. That's who you are. And not only that, I delight in you. I love you so much. I get pleasure from being in your presence. And I want you to trust that and live out of it. It's a beautiful thing. Sometimes people ask the question, why was Jesus baptized? We often talk about baptism as this, uh, this function of us proclaiming that, you know, we were sinful people and then we were baptized. We died to our, our self, our, our sinfulness, and then we're raised up in, in new life in Jesus. I believe all that's true. There's a lot of theology around baptism comes from the New Testament that talks about that. You go, well, why did Jesus get baptized? And I think it's for this moment. It's for this moment for, for him to rise and to hear that he is God's beloved, to say, at the core of everything, I derive my life, not because Jesus was sinful as we are, but for him to to go through that and say, my life comes from this declaration that I am God's beloved. And I believe that he calls us to follow him in that and to accept our identity of sons and daughters of the most high God in whom he absolutely delights. So in two weeks at Easter, we have some baptisms that are coming up. We have a couple of people that are interested in that. I think there might be some more of us that need to experience that. And perhaps uh, maybe it's been recently or maybe it's been a long time, but if you've made a decision to follow Jesus and you've never been baptized, even if that was a long time ago, I would invite you to come talk to us if you'd like to be part of that because this is a powerful step, this, this proclamation of who you are and what God has done for you. And to be able to say to people, not because of anything that I've earned, not because of anything that I've done, not because of anything that I could ever achieve, I am a child of God. And I've heard his voice call me his beloved and tell me that he delights in me. And that's what I want to live my life out of. That is the proclamation and the declaration from God's mouth that I want to live out of. If you'd like to join in that process and be baptized, you can grab a connect card on your way out today. Give us some contact information. Check the box on the back that that talks about baptism and drop it off. Or just come talk to me. Uh, Send me an email this week and we we can talk about that. If you have questions, we'd love to talk about that. This is at the core of who we are, our identity given to us by God. So last week, a couple of application points. Last week, we talked about looking for God and his presence and hearing from God in in different ways, whether it's in nature, through scripture, spending some time in prayer. I wonder if for some of us this week, how powerful it would be for us to take those words of Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17, and read them and think about them and meditate them every day this week to imagine what it would be like. Imagine Jesus being plunged into the water, being submerged into to rising out of that water into the life that is based on the love and delight of God. To imagine 
that that's our experience too. If we'd like to accept it and receive it, if we want to trust in God, not, not because we can do some flashy thing, but because God's calling us into a relationship of trust, that everything that we are is built off of the reality that he's created us in his image. He's called us to trust him with our lives, to order our lives around that deep, deep love. And then let me ask you this question, something to think about. How would your life be different if you didn't feel the need to impress anyone? If this really took root in your life, you said, I am the daughter, I am the son of God. He's created me and loved me. I walk with him. And he said, I don't have to drive my worth, my self-esteem, who I am, from what somebody else wants for my life or thinks that I should be, or having to impress someone, having to jump off a temple, having to do some very visible spiritual things where people might think, wow, look, look at how, how a greater relationship that person has with God or, or how moral they are. And, but what if you didn't have to impress anybody with anything and you could truly live out of being loved and delighted in? Would it change the way you act with money? Would you buy certain things? This is a good question. Would you buy certain things if you knew no one else would see them? Would you drive the same car, wear the same clothes, make the same purchases? Would you voice your opinion differently? Would you speak to people differently if you knew that your worth or your, your, uh, your confidence didn't have to depend on what they thought you were saying? Would you pursue a different vocation? We all want to be liked, but all we need is to be loved. And it sounds, I mean, that sounds almost cliche, but it's deeply true. We all want to be liked. We all want to impress people. We all want people to, to in some way, applaud us, affirm us. Oh, look at you. And I get it. And there's a certain level where that's not a bad thing. But the great temptation is for us to be spectacular and impressive and to do things that in order for people to give us what we think we need through popularity when all we really need is to deeply be loved. And I tell you this morning, if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with self-rejection, which I think is one of the greatest temptations that so many of us face, is that you've already got that love, that your heavenly father loves you and delights in you so deeply. So I told you that when I was a kid, uh, my dad came to every sporting event. Uh, he came and cheered me on. Even when I felt all the pressure, he, he was there to make sure that he knew. And he was so proud. I would get to certain places. Sometimes I would come to church and someone would go, wow, great game the other day. I'd be like, what do you mean? It's like, oh, you got, you know, and they're like telling me my stats. And I'm like, how did you know that? Oh, your dad was here. He told me all about it. He was just proud. He loved that kind of stuff. It was really good. Um, and, and I kind of loved that he loved it. And I loved that he showed up. I will always treasure those memories. I always treasure that he did that. It's a beautiful part of my childhood. But when I was 17, my dad got sick. He got diagnosed with leukemia. And there was about a year there where he was uh, in and out of the hospital. And when that kind of thing happens to your family, and I know some of you have dealt with this, your priorities change and the things that you show up to change and the things that are really important to you change. And so instead of showing up to sporting events, it was more us visiting the hospital uh, and just being together and, and changing the things that were important. Um, and, and life switches, but that relationship is so, so important. And I remember uh, probably about um, 
when I was 18, just a little bit after my 18th birthday, my dad passed away. About uh, a month before that, he wrote me a note. And the note is, is unremarkable. It's mostly a list of things that he wanted me to bring to the hospital that I wouldn't forget the next time. But I have kept that note ever since that. For decades, I have kept that note. I treasure that note, and I treasure the message of that note more than all of the times that he showed up to a sporting event, more than all of the times that he came to a track meet. Because after all those unremarkable things that he wrote in the note, he finished by saying this. Thanks, Dave. You're a wonderful son and friend, Dad. And that is the voice that all of us need from our Heavenly Father. To hear that voice that underneath all the things that you've done and all your achievements and all the times that you won the game, at the end of the day, this is what it's about. You're my daughter. You're my son. I love you. I delight in you. And my prayer for you today, and everybody listening along, is that you would hear that voice speaking directly and deeply into your heart. And whatever it is that you do in life, that you would know. It's your identity. It's who you are. It doesn't have to be remarkable. It doesn't have to be impressive. But you can trust the one who delights in you. So Heavenly Father, we pray that that message would reside deeply within us because there are many voices in our lives that tell us something different and put pressure on us to achieve certain things and do certain things. Remind us this morning of who we are, your children, who you love, your beloved. Remind us that you delight in us. You don't begrudgingly care for us because it's written in the Bible, but you truly and deeply, absolutely take joy in us. So God, I pray for anyone today who perhaps that's a real struggle for them to understand. Would you, by your spirit, speak to them, be with them, help to build our trust. God, I pray that our lives would be built around this most basic but incredibly powerful truth that we are your children. And that we would then love you in return. In Christ's name, amen.